Well, it's always a joy to be with you, and especially this, the last Sunday in 2021. I love the year's end because what that means is a new year is beginning. We get to start things afresh. My prayer is that you, Lord willing, this next year will find great success, a great amount of spiritual growth, a great amount of spiritual fruit, spiritual joy, a a year marked by a love and attention to God's Word like no other year in your life. To that end, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, the central message of this psalm, is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. If you look at the central part, the part we're going to narrow in on today, David says God's law is, God's testimony is, God's precepts are, His commandments are, and so forth. All of these are synonyms to Scripture. The message of this chapter is, Scripture is what? Sufficient. Scripture is sufficient. It's sufficient to do everything that needs to happen in terms of our life. And we're going to look through this chapter, through this section of this chapter, and define Scripture is sufficient. Sufficient for what? Sufficient for what? Sufficient for what? And David poetically and beautifully answers these questions in inspired Scripture. Scripture is sufficient to equip you for every good work. It makes a person wise to salvation. We heard it moments ago. It says in James 1.18, He brought us forth by the word of truth. Peter says in his second letter that God's divine power has granted to us all these things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us. Peter, where do we find that knowledge? Where do we see that knowledge? Where do we get that knowledge? Well, it's given to us, Peter goes on to say, verses 16 to 21 there in 2 Peter 1, is through the Word of God, the Word that is revealed by the prophets and the apostles in the 66 books of the Bible. It is because of the sufficiency of Scripture that from the beginning, God wanted His people, from among His people, to be men appointed to the task of ministering the Word. You see this early on, and you see it in the age of Israel. You see it in the early church, of course. God, through leaders appointed as elders, pastors of the people, their task is fundamentally to minister the Word to the people. Like I said, we see in the Old Testament, a tribe was assigned to that task. The tribe was called the Levites. These Levites were to minister the Word to the people, and you'll be interested to know it's it's uh, even back then, the people were given the, the proceeds of the land by God, and God did not give directly the Levites anything. No, the people out of their own proceeds were to give to these men. They gave them 48 cities among all spread around Israel, and these Levites would minister the word of God to the people. Yes, some of it would be teaching, but you may be surprised to know some of it, these Levites were assigned, we learn about in First Chronicles 15, that some of these Levites were assigned to minister the word of God through music. That's not the only way you minister God's Word to people. You would teach them, you would apply the task, you would help them understand, but you also would minister the Word of God through music. So as I was thinking about Steve, Pastor Steve, newly elected Pastor Steve, and ordaining him today here in a moment, uh, I thought this has this ministry of the Word. That's not the only thing that Steve does, but this ministry of music, this ministry of the Word goes all the way back to ancient times when the Word was ministered to the people through the use of praise and worship. And as I pondered this, I thought of Psalm 19. Here we have David, the the psalmist, 
He was a musician. He was a songwriter. You could call David the first Christian singer-songwriter. I don't know that he fit very well in Nashville, but he was writing music for the people of God, ministering the Word of God to the people as both a king and somewhat a prophet and somewhat someone who would come and minister not as an actual priest, but in the sense that he would lead the people in terms of spiritual things and the Word of God. He did that. And here he is erupting in song. And this song is all about the sufficiency of the Word of God, ministering the the, the testimony of the Word of God about itself to the people so that they too would have confidence in what the Word said. So I want to read the text for you. The the text really is 7 to 11, although we can include the entire chapter, but this is the central part of the text, probably somewhat familiar to, to you. I read earlier, uh, Pastor Rob read earlier from Psalm 119. Psalm 19 is sort of a miniature version of Psalm 119. It's all about the Word of God. So let me read to you 7 to 11. Follow along as I read aloud. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. This is the Word of God. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is the belief that the Bible is all we need to equip us and empower us for a life of faith and obedience to God. Let me say it again another way. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is the teaching or belief that all we need in terms of instruction and empowerment for our Christian life is found in the Bible. I was reading this week an article by a professor, Matthew Barrett, who teaches theology at the Midwestern Seminary. He's the editor of a pretty popular uh, magazine called Credo. He says it this way, Scripture is sufficient in that it is the only inspired, inerrant, and therefore final authority for Christians for faith and godliness, with all other authorities being subservient to Scripture. Now, this is a historic doctrine. This is what Christians have believed. This is what even the Old Testament saints believed about Scripture. We see it right here with David. Clearly, he he believes something about the Word of God and the sufficiency of the Word of God for his life and godliness. And in fact, Christians throughout history, particularly conservative Christians throughout history, even modern Christians, have very openly professed their belief in the sufficiency of Scripture. It was the sufficiency of Scripture that drove many Christians in the 1960s, 70s, 80s to fight against, especially in the Baptist world, to fight against the the modernism that basically said Scripture is not really God's Word. Or if it's God's Word, it is a mistake-filled God's Word, and it's insufficient. As we came out of that malaise of the 80s, Christians everywhere, many conservative Christians, have proclaimed that they believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, But what we found is that many people do indeed not believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, though they may believe it's the Word of God, they don't believe that it is really sufficient. 
In fact, if you look across and just survey all these people who might call themselves Christians or call themselves people of the book, if you look and read what they have to say in their statements of faith, you'd be easily confused that many of them believe in the sufficiency of Scripture when, in fact, they do not. Let me read to you a statement of faith or a part of a statement of faith from a particular group. See if you can think who this might be. We accept the entire Bible. We recognize the Bible as God's inspired message to humans. We base our beliefs on all 66 of its books, which include both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It goes on to say, we have built our system of belief and practice from the raw material of the Bible. Well, that sounds great. Who do you think said this? The Jehovah's Witness. This cult. They sound like they believe in Scripture. They seem like they believe in Scripture, and yet, what you find out as you begin to dig into the Jehovah's Witness religion, you find out that they only believe Scripture insofar as it's interpreted them by a group of men who meet, and we don't know who they are, they meet in secret and come up with a way we're supposed to interpret and understand the Bible. They say they believe in Scripture. They say they believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, but clearly they do not. What about this statement? Let me read another statement. The Bible is the inspired Word of God, a revelation from God to mankind, the infallible rule of faith and conduct, and a superior to conscience and reason, but not contrary to reason. This actually has historic undertones. Who do you think has this as their ministry statement? Benny Hinn Ministries. If you do any amount of study about Benny Hinn, you find out very quickly that he never teaches the Bible at all. He teaches prosperity. He teaches healing and wealth as the way that God is supposed to bless us. He does not teach the gospel at all. Joel Osteen, also known as Benny Hinn in the 21st century, always begins his sermons. You know what? If you've ever watched him, they raise their Bible. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. And he goes on to talk about that. Then they set the Bible down and never open it to study it. Well, I doubt Jehovah's Witness or the prosperity gospel is much of a threat to you folks here on the Sunday after Christmas. But there are threats to us. Ministries, pastors, churches that claim to believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, that as you dig and as you begin to acquaint yourself with their ministry, you find out Though their statement of faith is good and clear and announces the sufficiency of Scripture, they do not indeed believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. What's the big problem with the church growth movement? The church growth movement is based in the philosophy of pragmatism, which equates kingdom growth with local churches getting big. So the church growth movement says that we as believers, our objective is to make our local churches as big as humanly possible because that's the way we grow the kingdom. You look to numeric growth, quantifiable growth as the measure and the objective of a local church. And a lot of us here probably uh, have moved away at least a little bit from the church growth movement. Well, you might be surprised to know that there is a reformed version of the church growth movement. There is reformed pragmatism. There are not just a few Calvinistic churches who say all the right things on the paper, who proclaim the sufficiency of Scripture... That when you start to inspect, when you start to look at the preaching and listen carefully to what's going on and why they do what they do and how they do it and look behind the ministry philosophy, you find out it's all about getting bigger, being more appealing, finding favor in the world, gaining more clients, so to speak, more patrons, more people in the church, 
Everything from the kind of preaching to the music down to even what the pastor wears is defined by this one idea of getting more people. So sometimes you have to dig. Even a Reformed statement of faith is not enough to tell us if someone is truly believing in the sufficiency of Scripture. What's the problem with the charismatic movement? It is based in finding experiences and revelation outside the Bible. Again, this is a defiance of the power and sufficiency of Scripture. They teach that your life would really be fulfilled, it would really be better if you had some kind of esoteric, mystical experience not found in Scripture, not found, really just found on your own. So the net effect in a lot of charismatic churches is people hunting for an experience, the greatest of which would be God revealing Himself directly outside of Scripture to you. Did you know that for the last 40 years or so, there is a growing reformed charismatic movement? And let me just say this, this is not just people who differ on, you know, gifts and whether they exist or not. I'm talking about a group of people, there's a group of people who really look to experiences as the primary expression of your Christian faith. Pastors and churches who on paper have the same reformed doctrines that we have and others have, but they're selling an idea that you can level up your Christian life through experience. They try to provide those experiences on Sunday morning and encourage people toward it as they go home. This is a defiance of the sufficiency of Scripture. It lurks even in the corners of the Reformed world, and it's a threat to all of us. Probably the greatest threat to sufficiency of Scripture is simply in our lives a lack of discipline. You don't go home and read your Bible. The Bible opens on Sunday morning and never opens again. You may proudly pat yourself on the back and say, well, I'm not involved in church growth. I see the negatives of that. I, I'm not involved in the cares, but I see the negative gro- uh, things of that. I, I'm very proud that I can step away from that, but you never open your Bible, so you don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. You think you can do life without the Word of God. The sufficiency of Scripture should be the aroma of any Christian and any Christian ministry, any church. Every Christian, every believer should have this aroma that I trust, I believe in, I depend upon the Word of God. Every church, every Christian ministry should, should display that they 100% depend on the Word of God. Every sermon should have a subtext, we believe in the power and sufficiency of Scripture. Every other ministry inside the church should be anchored in the idea and effort to get that one great thing, the Word of God, into the, to the minds of the people so that perhaps the Spirit would use that to change them, save them, and sanctify them. This applies, of course, to even the worship ministry. Now, I want to be clear what we do at NBC. We're too small of a church to pay a pastor just to do worship ministry. Steve does a lot of other things other than just worship ministry, especially as he's taken on counseling. Him and Danelle both have been doing a lot of counseling for us, and that's, that, that's a great burden. The more you counsel, the more of a burden that is. You're discipling people. You're taking on their burdens. You're sharing with them, fellowshipping with their struggles, and trying to help them see the truth of Scripture and depend and build their life on the sufficiency of Scripture. You're discipling them out of this, their struggles, and this can be a very difficult thing. And Steve's been doing that, but again, it is a ministry of the Word. It's a ministry of the Word, just like it is in the worship. So whether it's the music ministry or counseling or preaching or children's ministry, 
The objective of an elder is to get the sufficient word to the people. In fact, if you study the attributes of an elder, of a pastor, you find these primarily in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 to 7, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 16, and 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5. You'll discover that the definition, the requirements of an elder, a pastor, are all about character and integrity. In fact, really, if you look at what's required of pastors, it's no different than what's required of all people, all Christians are required to be people of integrity. Now, pastors have a little bit more layers of accountability, and, and it has to be proven. But the same holiness that's required of you is required of pastors, and that's really the definition that they've been proving that they have this integrity. They have proven that they have this character. But there's one exception. There's one characteristic that stands out among this demand, on this demand for character and godliness, and that is the skill, the skill to deliver God's Word to God's people. You must have the skill of ministering the Word of God to people. It doesn't mean that all elders are the main preaching elder. We see this even in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. There are some that do preach and teach. There are some that do other things. But all of it is about ministering the Word of God to God's people. Now, why? Why is ministering the Word of God to God's people so important that you screen and test and ordain men to do it, and you even pay some guys to, so they can focus all their attention every day of their life on ministering God's Word to God's people? Why do you have guys who spend years and years training to understand and deliver the Word of God to God's people? Why do you have all these years of proof, and they have to live in such a way and show themselves as men who are uh, living out the sufficiency of Scripture life? Now, that's because we believe, indeed, in the sufficiency of God's Word. This Word, properly explained and applied to the people, is the central task of the local church. All of our duties, all of our doctrine as Christians flow from what we find here in Scripture. And the Bible is sufficient to equip every single one of us for everything that God desires for us in terms of faith, belief, attitude, and obedience. Well, 3,000 years ago, there was a young shepherd king a musician, as I said, by the name of David. David was meditating on this very doctrine, the sufficiency of Scripture, and his emotions caught up with his doctrine, and he sat down and penned Psalm 19. He erupts with praise to God over this very truth. He begins with what is called general revelation. I talked about it a couple of weeks ago. General revelation, that's verses 1 to 6, not special revelation, the Word of God, but just broad, generic, general things that every person can see and understand about God. And he praises God for the beauty of general revelation. In fact, let me read this to you. Look at there at the beginning of Psalm 19, to the choir master, a psalm of David. By the way, you always include that part in the psalm. That is a part of the original psalm as well. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. That's revelation. Day to day we have revelation of God. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In them He has set forth a tent, set a tent for the sun which becomes like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens. Its circuit 
to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, there's a lot we could study just there. David says some things that are pretty amazing from an astronomer's point of view, talking about the circuit of the sun. Back in the day, many people thought about a flat earth. Even to the, through the Middle Ages, people thought about the earth being flat. Clearly, David doesn't believe this. There is a circle, a circuit that the sun goes through. This really reveals divine inspiration of the words here, truths far beyond what a lot of people even understood for many years. But this is a praise song in this first few verses. It's a praise song for God's general revelation in nature, the beauty, the intricacy, the rhythm, the course of the world. It's something to behold. And which one of us have not gone outside and looked at the, the night sky or the sunrise or sunset or the vastness of the ocean and just praise God? You may even sing something similar to what David says here for this magnificent revelation, general revelation, there must be a God. As I said, though, general revelation is missing something, and it's missing the specifics. We don't know the gospel by looking at creation. You can look and be amazed and even sing about God's revelation in nature, but nature tells us nothing about the nature of God, the nature of man, of sin, of redemption, the Messiah, his atoning work and resurrection, his promised return, and short general revelation, though wonderful and praise-inducing, is insufficient when it comes to life and godliness. The only thing that's sufficient for true spiritual life and nourishment is special revelation, which is the Word of God. And so it doesn't take David very long to move away from general revelation and praising God for that to praising Him for the Word of God. Here, David makes six statements about the sufficiency of Scripture, and I want us to note these things. If you notice the message I entitled simply is, Scripture is, and the reason I did that is because David, how, how David writes this song. He says at the beginning of each phrase, a synonym for the Word of God, verse 7, God's law is, God's testimony is, verse 8, God's precepts are, His commandment is, verse 9, God's fear is, then finally God's rules are. And after each statement is a poetic comment on the sufficiency of God's Word. They each are singing of the sufficiency of Scripture to our maximum benefit. Each has its own nuance about describing the Word of God. And each has its own nuance of application of what it provides for us. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go through each of these six statements. And uh, I got to uh, page 11 or so of my sermon, which is about the length of my sermons, and I was only on point three. So this is going to be a two-Sunday sermon, as per usual. So write these down. Number one, Scripture is sufficient for spiritual life. Sufficient for spiritual life. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The word law there, Torah, this is God's instruction, God's expectations, God's demands laid out for us, specifying to us what God wants, how He wants us to live and act and believe and how we're to apply it to everyday living. The Bible, in one sense, is our owner's manual, how to operate, how to function properly in life. 
Sometimes we distinguish in the law the three categories of moral, civil, and ceremonial laws, and it does help us in some ways to understand the different laws, though the Bible doesn't categorize them in that way. It's all simply just God's law. All of it is God laying out expectations, and there's always a question when it comes to God's law, and the question is now, does God's law change? And the answer is yes and no. The answer is yes and no. Yes, in terms of ceremonial laws that have been fulfilled in Christ. Yes, in terms of these civil laws that ruled the people of Israel. But no, in terms of his moral will, it never changes. God never changes. Though the covenants change, though the phases of redemption change, though the people of God, there's a shift from new to old, God himself remains the same. So in terms of his moral demands, in terms of what he demands ethically from us, it never changes. This is one reason I think the Old Testament is so relatable to us. Far more than even what we find in the New Testament, I believe we have way more chapters there, way more books there. We see these people who are just struggling with, what does God demand of me? How can I obey God? These people are relatable. These are really our spiritual relatives, right? They're our spiritual descendants. They're trying to to live by the same moral code delivered to them as we do us, the law of God. Now, notice what David says. The law of the Lord is what? Perfect. Yes, this means perfect as opposed to imperfect. It is error-free in the original autographs. We believe the Bible is error-free. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It cannot be contradictory or mistaken. It is perfect in that sense. But this word perfect in the Hebrew means more than just error-free. It does mean that, but it means even more. It means complete. The Hebrew word really is the word comprehensive. All that you need is here, morally, spiritually, religiously, doctrinally. All that you need in terms of your character, all that you need in terms of your understanding of God, your understanding of the broad story of history, of of the nature of man and salvation and fall, of eternity, of God's plans, all that you need, particularly in this context, all that you need in terms of how to live your life, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now, what happens when we begin to rely on the Word of God in this way? What happens if you look to the Word daily to discover the perfect law of God? What happens when you start to fashion your life around the instructions of God, the Torah of God? End of that first phrase there, reviving the soul. The law of God revives the soul. Some of your translations say restoring the soul. The word soul there, it's your inner man, your heart, your eternal self, the core of who you are, who you are for eternity. And that part of you is what God's perfect law revives. In other words, God's law is not some superficial, lifeless, legalistic standard. It's not outward, external only, artificial regulations. This law, if you're a believer, changes your very soul. In fact, if you read Psalm chapter 1, the very first psalm, blessed is the man who walks not on the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight 
is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Isn't that good? We delight in the law of God. To the perfect law of God, studied, delighted in, cherished, what does it do? It brings revival to your soul. It revives the soul. Now, there's a lot of talk about revival. In Christianity, there's a lot of talk about revival, a lot, a lot of discussion of how to get it, how to keep it, where to find it, how it breaks out, how to help others get it. Some folks make the reviving of the soul the, the centerpiece of their ministry, really the objective of their ministry. But I want to say this is getting the result confused with the objective. The objective is to know and love the law of God, not to have revival. The objective is not simply empty passion. That creates a rudderless ship. Some historians say that the Jesus movement, this is the problem with the Jesus movement in the 60s and 70s, what happened was is you had all this empty passion, no doctrine, no law, no truth. You had all this passion for Jesus, but it had no doctrine with it, no law. And so it died and actually spurred all kinds of bizarre syncretistic ideas about God and Jesus. True revival comes not when revival is pursued, but when God's Word is pursued. Of course, revival assumes there's life there to begin with, right? If you are being revived, it's because at least there's some amount of life there. You looked alive at some point. You were alive to the things of God at some point, and maybe you've gotten to a point of, of dryness or deadness. And the law is what comes to you and makes you alive, but it's also something that brings people from death to life. It saves people. I mentioned John, James 1.18 earlier, God brought us forth by the word of truth. David says it later, the, the word reveals that only God can, verse 12, declare you innocent, make you blameless, or to use Paul's vernacular, justify you. We learn from the word of God about justification. We learn how we are declared innocent in God's eyes by studying the Bible and learning that Jesus himself was perfect. And isn't that transaction, when we have faith in Christ, that the righteousness of Christ is applied to us, the payment for sin is applied to us, the power over sin and death and the resurrection is applied to us. We have faith in Christ and we are justified. We learn this from studying the law of God. In the law, we find that we're incapable. When you finally raise that white flag and surrender trust in Christ's righteousness. When you trust in Christ's atonement, believe in the resurrection, what happens? You're declared righteous, and you sing with David, Lord, you are my rock and my redeemer, and then you begin to rejoice in the law of God. You find life. You find that the law of God is not some heavy demand and legalistic burden. It is a, a light burden, and you rejoice to follow the law of God. So just as with salvation, revival doesn't happen we make revival the goal. It happens when we open our Bible and study and give ourselves to knowing the Word of God. Are you worn out, spiritually speaking? Are you dry in your devotion? It happens at this time of the year a lot, doesn't it? You become lukewarm or downright cold in your passion and love for God. The answer is not to focus on passion. The answer is to focus on the Word of God. What a great instruction for the new year. I hope you take the next few days to figure out what you're going to start studying in the new year. What books, what studies are you going to do, what plan are you going to have? Don't just assume that you're going to naturally just 
open the Bible and start doing it with great discipline. Start working on it now. Come up with a plan and be ready as the new year begins. How dedicated are you to small group? Understanding, really, small groups that we have, our family groups, are all about taking the Word of God that's been preached and applying it to your life, living it out, obeying the instruction. How dedicated are you to these things, the, even coming to church and being a part of worship as we study the Word of God? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, soul. Scripture is sufficient for spiritual life. That's number one. Two, Scripture is sufficient for spiritual wisdom. The rest of verse 7 give us the second of these six characteristics. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Testimony. Think of it as divine witness, divine attestation. That's what we have in the Bible. Think about uh, the witness stand, a, a person comes up, the judge or the bailiff says, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? Of course, then the guy gets on the stand and he forgets really what happened, or maybe he downright lies. What about the testimony of God? Hebrews 6.18, it's impossible for God to lie. What he offers us in this book is the perfect testimony. He's the perfect d- divine witness of himself, of human history, of salvation, of truth. That's why David sings, the testimony of the Lord is sure, it's certain. I mentioned 2 Peter 1 earlier. Peter says in verse 18 that in the Bible, we have something even more sure than eyewitness testimony. And you think that that's, that's the ultimate, and it, it, it indeed is in our courtrooms, right? The eyewitness testimony is the most sure kind of of reality, of truth that we can get, of testimony. Peter says even more sure than eyewitness is the Word of God. The Word of God is more sure, it's more fully confirmed than even eyewitness account. It includes eyewitness account, but it's even more sure than that. This is divine witness. It's God's own perfect testimony, His confirmed attestation to all of these things. And what does that do? When we go to the sure word, what does it do for us? Well, it fills our simple minds. It fills our minds and hearts with true wisdom. You want to grow spiritually, don't you? Study the testimony of God. You want to mature, know the Word of God better in 2022 than you did in 2021, don't you? Study the testimony of God. And we live in a day where there's so much disinformation out there, so much, of, so much of it motivated by political reasons, and you look at any of the mainstream media and you learn very quickly that these things are full of rotten, sinful desires. You can't really know. You go to alternative websites and try to decipher what's true, and even then you see all the ad banners popping up everywhere, and you kind of wonder, well, are these guys being true? Because they're, they're certainly making a lot of money off doing this. Well, there is one thing that is true. Always, 100% certain. So why not just fill your heart with God's Word? God's Word is the only sure testimony. And by the way, if that's the only sure thing that will right the ship in a person's life that will bring about not just revival but wisdom, that's the only thing that will right a wayward country, right? Not some political movement but the Word of God in the hearts of man. 
Begin by filling your own simple mind with something that's sure. Begin by filling your own weakness and immaturity with something that is true, something that is proven, a testimony that is absolutely certain. It is the Word of God. All right, moving on. Verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Number three, Scripture is sufficient for genuine joy. Scripture is sufficient for genuine joy. Precepts here, this word means doctrine, or you could say theological principles, truths about God, man, the world, truths concerning salvation and eternity, doctrines about sin and judgment and sanctification and heaven. That's what precepts are. Biblical principles. One of the things throughout history that God's people have done is that they have sought to lay out the principles given to us in the Word of God in a, in a clear manner, and they begin with this base, very basic question, what does the Bible say about, and fill in the blank. And then further, what does the Bible say about fill in the blank fit in with what the Bible says about another fill in the blank, right? What does the Bible say about God, and what does the Bible say about salvation? And how do they fit together, the nature of God and salvation? How do these things all fit together? Well, this effort is called systematic theology. You don't have to remember that phrase. Systematic theology, you're systematizing what is revealed to us in Scripture. But it's the recognition that the Bible teaches principles, precepts, doctrine. It teaches points of truth. And since the Bible is perfect and does not contradict itself, all of these things fit together in perfect unity. They all fit together to form a perfect worldview given to us by none other than God Himself. And it's given testimony, as we studied a moment ago, it's given testimony to this all over the Bible. You don't have one sort of uh, proof verse that stands on its own in contradiction to many other verses. No, all of it fits together, and it's repeated over and over throughout the Bible. And so you have all these what they call cross-references. You Many of your Bibles even have them. As you read it, you see a little note, then it refers you to another passage to look to, and you see that this same doctrine, this same principle is taught elsewhere in Scripture. Someone once came up to me and said, Pastor, you know, you don't have to worry about all those cross-references. You give a lot of other passages as you preach, and your sermons would actually be a lot shorter if you weren't reading from all over the Bible, and, and, and you know, you just read the one that you're looking at, and that's, that's enough for us. Oh, but I have to do this. Because what I'm establishing is not just that this is a standalone doctrine from this specific passage. I'm showing you this is a biblical principle. This is a precept that is taught throughout the Bible. Well, David goes on. He sings, these precepts are right. They are truth in a real sense. They are proven. They are established. They're seen throughout the Bible over and over and throughout history. And if you start to grasp these principles, what will you find? Joy. You'll find joy. Isn't that great? Again, some Christians think that because joy is the result, joy ought to be the objective, and they pursue joy without pursuing truth. But it's joy through truth. It's revival through truth. It's wisdom through truth. 
David doesn't say, I just pursue joy for the sake of joy. I pursue revival for the sake of revival. No, he shows us here. Pursue, study, know the true precepts of the Word of God, and then you will find joy. I think this is, again, one of those things that maybe Americans struggle with more than others. We learn from a very young age that it is our right to have the pursuit of happiness. We import that idea into the Christian life, and we avoid doctrine, we avoid truth, we avoid Scripture, and instead we focus on how we feel. But just like true revival and true wisdom, joy is not found by focusing on itself. It's by focusing on the Word of God, learning, knowing, living out the precepts of the Word. Then you will find joy. Will you do that this year? Will you focus on the Word of God? I know Pastor Steve and all of us, you can see it in the way we do our singing the way we do our music and arrange our music and even do our service. I don't know if you know this, but the way we even have the worship service, and we, we have some announcement first, but then, then we start. We don't include in the worship of God. We're focused on the Lord. We're focused on His truth. Lots of Scripture reading. At the pinnacle of the worship service, all, going all the way back to the time of the people of Israel, the pinnacle was the, the reading and explanation of the Word of God. And so we put this pulpit right in the middle of the sanctuary, and the guy gets up and explains the Word of God. Why? Because we believe Scripture is sufficient for spiritual life, sufficient for spiritual wisdom, sufficient for genuine joy. Why is it sufficient? Because it is God's Word. Go all the way back to the beginning. God spoke, and life happened. God's Word is powerful. Like a two-edged sword, it convicts you down deep in the innermost parts of your life. But then it also empowers you to overcome sin. So why would any pastor, whether it's a preacher or the family pastor or the worship pastor, dabble in anything else but the Word of God? Why would we do anything but give you the Word? Anything else we would give would just be cheap, substitute, fall short of the power that God has for us in His Word. Well, this is a good place to stop. There are three more. This is a good place to stop so we have time to ordain Pastor Steve. I, like I said, I truly intended to, to get through all of this today. Maybe one day I'll, I'll abbreviate the sermon, but I just couldn't help myself this time to thoroughly go through this. We'll hold on to this for next week. Mm-hmm.